2024 is all about new beginnings. And to help you become the best version of yourself this year, Cerebral just launched their newest innovation designed to support you in reaching your mental health goals. It's called Cerebral Way, a personalized path to mental wellness that is designed specifically around your unique needs and experiences. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best in 2024. Sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends April 30th. See site for details. The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by listeners' support via the Secret Library Podcast Patreon. You can check it out at patreon.com slash secretlibrary. This is episode 128 of the Secret Library Podcast. My guest today is AJ Jacobs, who is an American journalist, author, and lecturer. He's an editor-at-large for Esquire and has worked for the Antioch Daily Ledger and Entertainment Weekly. I have been a fan of A.J. Jacobs' writing for quite some time, having read The Year of Living Biblically and, of course, The Know-It-All, which was a book about him reading the entire encyclopedia, which both fascinated, horrified, and delighted me in equal measure because I could see an impulse in myself that would want to read the entire encyclopedia, and I was so grateful to him for doing it for me and writing about it so I didn't have to. Um, I feel that way frequently with his books. And I was very excited to have him on to talk about his latest Thanks a Thousand, which was about thanking everybody in conjunction with the production of his morning cup of coffee. So having AJ on, I was very eager to talk about the process of coming up with an experiment you can do in your life and then using the construct of a book to follow through on that. You may remember we had an episode in the early days of the show with Aaron Jordan about the concept of stunt journalism. And you may want to take a listen to that one again, because AJ Jacobs is definitely a writer in that tradition, taking an idea of what can I do with my life that might make it different? I would learn something and expand it and then to turn it into a book. I love this concept and I really enjoyed this book. So it was a treat to talk about his process, how he makes this work and how this style of writing has impacted his life as a whole. So you're in for a treat. Here we go with AJ Jacobs. Hey, AJ, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. I I have to thank you since it's my job uh, to be a professional thanker. That's but true. I do, I do mean it. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And thanks to your parents for having you and Aww. their parents for having them. Wow. I can thank some of those people, but not all of them directly. Ah, right. We yeah, missed true. the bus on a few of them, but um, <laughs> I'm sure they hear it somewhere and they're very grateful for it. So I really enjoyed this book, Thanks a Thousand, that's out now. And I also want to talk a little bit about your process of writing in general, because it's not the only one of your books I've read. Uh-huh. I loved The Know-It-All. As oh, thank I, you. I have a tendency to be a similar type of person. <laughs> <laughs> so more than one person recommended to me that I should read it. And uh, it was in a period when I had a lot of road trips. And so it was very good company, as was the Year of Living Publicly. So ah. 
Well, thank you. Yeah, sometimes I get people who say they read it in the bathroom, which I'm not <laughs> insulted by. I think that's fine. <laughs> Because uh, I do tend to have sort of short chunks. My chapters and ideas are are on the shorter side. So uh, it, it's built for bathrooms, some people say. And I'm, you know, as they say, I'm fine with that. That's that's great. I love it. Built for bathrooms is a good bumper sticker. <laughs> you just yeah, have I'm not going to go that far. I'm yeah. not going to put it on my bumper. But. So in terms of this book, but also your books in general, I'm interested in the process of coming up with a book that is not just a book idea, but also a project, which also you're very generous in sharing the impact said project has on both you and your family around you as you go through it. <laughs> like I'm thinking right. of your, your wife's reaction to certain aspects of the year of living biblically, sitting in particular chairs and so on. Um, oh, yes. She, uh, yeah, just to clarify for those who haven't read it, she, um, this was a book where I tried to follow all the rules of the Bible as literally as possible. And in Leviticus, it says that you cannot touch women in their time of month, but it goes farther. It says that if a menstruating woman has uh, sits in a chair, then that chair becomes impure and you cannot sit in it without becoming impure. My wife found that offensive, so she sat in every chair in our apartment, and I was forced to stand for the year. So, uh, yeah, that's the background on that. And I was very proud of her. Uh, I was exasperated, <laughs> but proud. Amazing. So having this, I don't know, talent, would, would you say, uh, for finding books that are projects that are almost personal explorations and ways to look at life differently, along with ending up with a book at the end. Could you say a little bit about the process of coming up with the project from the beginning? You shared a little bit about why you chose coffee for Thanks a Thousand, but I'm really interested in, in what it takes to narrow it down to one that you're really going to hang out with with a period of time. Mm -hmm, sure. Uh, yeah, as as you know, I, I dive into my topics, immerse myself, I live them, and then sort of write about them. Uh, so a lot of times, uh, well, first of all, I come up with lots of ideas, but 99% of them are terrible. So, uh, <laughs> so you're only reading the 1% that I think are, uh, are somewhat uh, decent. But the, um, uh, what I like to do is I, if I'm interested in a topic, I sort of take it to the extreme. So I was, I was, I grew up with no religion at all. Uh, as I say in the book, I'm Jewish, but I'm Jewish in the same way the Olive Garden is Italian. So <laughs> not very. But I was like, how can I study religion? I have a kid. I want to learn about it. Why don't I live it? Why don't I just live as literally as possible by the Bible, or for the. Um, for health, I uh, I was in terrible shape, and I was like, uh, I want to learn everything there is to learn about health. So I'm going to follow every bit of health advice there is, like thousands of diet and sleep and exercise and stress and sex and going to the bathroom, all of these. And then I'm going to see what happens and report back. So I take something, and then I sort of test it out in, an, in a, as extreme a way as possible and then come back with what might actually be useful and practical because I 
I don't encourage others to do this unless you, know, <laughs> you have your own book contract. But uh, but I I love the process. I just think it's a great way to learn, sort of hands-on learning, on-the-job method method writing. Some people call it. So I uh, the only way I can kind of metabolize it is to imagine myself in this situation, which is. I am not that unlike you in that sense of like, if a topic interests me, it doesn't interest me like 10%. If it interests me 10%, I'm going to abandon it. It interests me like 150%. And I'm going to get all the books and I'm going to go all the way into it. But what happens? Yeah. yeah, it's like, it's really, it's just like, if it's interesting, why not? You eat it whole. Uh, what exactly. do you do when you get in like partway and then there's the writing process? Because there's simultaneous the interest where you're you're researching and you're diving into it and you're taking the supplements and doing all the stuff. And then there's also the process of writing the book about it. And mm, how right. do those work together? Because I've done it for myself without writing a book about it. But writing a book changes the process, I imagine, quite a bit. True. Well, I am... While I'm doing it, I'm taking copious notes. So I just have hundreds of pages of notes for everything. And and part of the book is just um, sort of looking through those and choosing an interesting through line and the most uh, engaging parts. Um, I will say, as a writer, I, I love the research and interview process. Um, I actually like the the post publication process where you're trying to market it and talk about it. I uh, hate the actual writing part of it. <laughs> I am not a fan of that at all. Um, I just, uh, yeah, it's. I think it's the 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 solitude that I don't. I feel it's solitary confinement. I'm in this tiny little office that I rent and the, no one is around. And I, I, I've i learned to love speaking because I feel like you can get an immediate feedback of, uh, oh, this is working. People are laughing. People look interested. Um, whereas with a book, you know, you're typing and you don't know how it's going to come out, how people are going to react until a year and a half later. So I have learned to despise the actual writing, but uh, I'm a writer who hates writing, but I like the other parts. Well, it's good that there are other parts that you can look forward to. <laughs> so how do you motivate yourself in those moments? Because everybody, even if somebody loves writing, there are days when you think, oh my God, why am I doing this today? So how do you yeah. get yourself through that process of solitary confinement? Well, a couple of ways. First of all, uh, I'm a big believer in your action, your attitude, and your emotions. Um, so I talk a lot about this in my books. But, but what for in terms of writing, even just forcing myself to move my fingers over the keyboard. So for the first twenty minutes, I you know uh, I'll just type whatever comes stream of consciousness. You know I might type about the pigeon that's out on the window ledge or the, uh, you know, I might type about what I'm having for breakfast just to get myself in the uh, uh, behavior of writing words and knowing that I'm going to throw it out. But, uh, but that gives me a little momentum. Uh, and as much as I hate uh, the actual act of writing, I, I try to find moments of joy 
in it. And I do. I do find some moments. I loved a friend of mine is a comedy writer. Uh, he wrote for The Daily Show. And he told me about how he loves to surprise himself when he's writing. And it's a paradoxical notion because how can you surprise yourself? You know, it's like you, you're in there, but, uh, <laughs> but I've, I've learned to, I've to understand what he's saying that sometimes you're typing along a sentence and then you'll just take a left turn and, uh, without even being able to predict where it was going. And I love that. So trying to find the moments where if you can surprise yourself, then imagine what you can do to the reader. Like if you're surprised, then hopefully the reader will be even more surprised. So that's that's one thing that helps me. I mean, I think that's another thing that's important too is that I think it's different when you're talking about nonfiction because you're talking about something that actually happened that you've mm. been doing. But I think it's, it's equally true with fiction. Like if everything that you wrote was completely obvious to you before writing it, it would be both boring to you as the writer and as the reader. Right. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And that's the interesting thing with nonfiction is make trying to make it as creative and surprising as fiction. And, you know, you can't make up facts, but you can, make up uh, unexpected metaphors and um, observations and jokes. And so there's a lot of room there for creativity. Definitely. There was one thing that you mentioned, you kind of mentioned it both in the book in Thanks a Thousand, and you also mentioned it in the acknowledgments. And my little nerdy ears perked up. I suppose I should <laughs> say my eyeballs because I was reading it, not listening to it. That there was a spreadsheet that you used with your team to track all of the the thank yees. I don't really, there isn't really a word, is there, other than thank yees for people yeah. being thanked? Is that a real word? I don't know. I use it and I like it. Uh, that is true. I used, my team was just one friend who I hired uh, to help me come up with, track down the thank yees. Um, but yeah, as you know, the premise of the book was I tried to thank 1,000 people who had anything to do with my morning cup of coffee. Like, so I went wide. I went six degrees of, uh, of gratitude. So, uh, you know, you got to thank the farmer, of course. So I went down to South America and thanked them. But also there's the truck driver. And then the, the guy who uh, he couldn't do his job without the road. So I thanked the people who paved the road. And then the people who painted the yellow lines on the road because otherwise the truck with the coffee beans might veer into traffic and uh, I'd never get my coffee. So I, I thanked literally over a thousand people and yeah, I used a spreadsheet. Uh, so because it was, it was, uh, you know, every person that I thanked would spawn five other people that I could thank. Uh, so it became a monumental task, uh, and I had to organize it somehow. Yes, I'm a big fan of spreadsheets in writing. I was interested also because the title is obviously Thanks a Thousand, 
surrounding these thousand people that are thanked. But partway through the process, I believe triggered by the possibility that Beyonce might need to get involved, there was a thought that <laughs> I might go on thanking people forever, and it could involve every single person on earth eventually, because this topic is connected to so many people. So before you started writing, did you know it was going to be a thousand people and it was there was sort of a working title? Or at what point did you realize it was going to be a thousand people and it was going to be Thanks a Thousand? Well, actually, the original title, the title that the publisher came up with was Thank You All. Thank you, comma, all. Mm. And uh, but as I was writing, as you say, I was like, you know what? The, it'll give it more structure and it'll give me a, a, a limit if I do thanks a thousand if I thank a thousand people. And late in the game, I was like, you know, this might be a better title. Uh, you know, it's alliterative, first of all. Yep. And it's a little more specific than thank you all. And actually, this was interesting because I feel um, like if you're a writer and you propose a title, uh, the publishers are sometimes like, yeah, I don't know. I, we like this title. So I felt I should come in with some actual evidence that my title was preferable. So <laughs> I, I hired, I spent like a hundred dollars, um, and tested it. Uh, this guy who's much smarter than I am about internet stuff. So I took their title. Thank you all. And I took my title. Thanks a thousand. And we sent it out to, I don't know how they did it, but it was like a survey. Right. And, um, of strangers and thanks a thousand one and so i was able to send them this spreadsheet i know you like spreadsheets yes uh showing that thanks a thousand was more popular and then they were like all right let's change it so uh that was i think it was you know it was a hundred dollars of my own money but a hundred dollars well spent because i do prefer the thanks a thousand it's just much more specific. Oh, it's then, also clever. You. I mean, the not thanks a million, but thanks a thousand. Also, it gives you sort of, I mean, how would you ever have finished thanking all? If exactly. you thanked you That's all, true. I mean, you'd still be going now. Right. You'd write your own encyclopedia. <laughs> I know, it could be thousands of pages. Uh, my brother-in-law, who loves puns uh, to a fault, it's uh, it can be painful, but he's he was rooting <laughs> for uh, thanks a latte. Oh, like, uh, that's amazing. Yeah, you think I should have done that? No, I, I just, it's it's cringeworthy, <laughs> amazing, and really satisfying in a particular way. <laughs> well, maybe for, uh, yeah, maybe I can do that, market it towards, I don't know, people who like puns. If you want to do uh, like a tour, like a companion coffee tour of New York, it could be the Thanks a Latte tour of New uh, York. Nice. You know, as like a sure. marketing event or something. I do. I do like lattes. I don't, uh, I'm more of like a regular old coffee, but, uh, but lattes are not so bad. I tend to drink, to diverge into the coffee, yeah. I tend to drink black coffee at home because I, my husband is a lunatic who measures the beans, measures oh. the water, measures the, the whole thing. This was mystifying to me when we first met. And then he made me a chart. <laughs> so now I am qualified to make coffee at home, which is good. Oh, interesting. And what is the measurements? Oh, God, I knew you were going to say that. It's in the other room. I'd have to look. It's. I think it's about 
it's changed. It's usually about, depending on how much we're making, I think it's about 20 grams of beans to 12 ounces of coffee for a pour. Over. All right. That sounds right. I don't know what, I'm actually not a huge coffee expert, even though I spent a year with it. I mean, the funny thing is uh, you are much better than me because drinking your coffee black is the way the coffee uh, aficionados want you to do it. Like when they see people pouring in milk or or almond milk and sugar they're just aghast like yeah. you are ruining our perfect our perfectly calibrated cup of coffee with your uh with your adulterants and they, uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, so and i'm terrible because i put in almond milk and uh i like it that way uh but uh you are much you are you would be much more popular with them. I don't know. Well, the thing is, is I will tend to get a latte or cappuccino at a place if I don't know their coffee, because it's a safe bet if you're not ah, sure that you like it. Right. That's good. Yeah. So I right. kind of hedge it a little bit. And then once I say, oh, that was pretty good. I might try the black coffee. This is mm. this is the strategy anyway. Smart. But um, I loved hearing about Joe's and the logo and every little design process that went into it. And it was the thought that you had of, you know, really going into and paying more attention to things that you got so much more enjoyment out of the experience by paying more attention to it. And I'm wondering if that was the case, if that's been the case with all of your books, because you have paid, I mean, you paid a lot of attention to the encyclopedia. That to me is like heroic because I mean, <laughs> how could you read anything else that whole time? That's all you're reading. That is true. It's like that reading. definitely filled up my entire day. Yeah, it was like reading fruitcake. I mean, it's the densest thing you can get your Oh, that's a good metaphor. You're right. It was like reading fruitcake. Um, yeah, no, I love going deep and I love learning. Uh, you know, the, the, that is probably my, uh, my, my one strength is curiosity. I am genuinely curious. And so, and hopefully my my in my my enthusiasm is infectious so that's my my hope that people like learning what i learn um but it is interesting you mentioned about how uh you know i noticed all the things that go into uh coffee like the logo i became more and since i'm on a book podcast i thought you know i think a lot about the fact that my book required hundreds of people to uh, make it happen. So even though it says my name on the cover, I feel that's kind of a weird and misleading, uh, the idea of a sole author is just not realistic because it could have been on the cover, it could have said, you know, words by A.J. Jacobs, but then like list my editor, list the designer, the person who designed the font the people who made the paper the people who um you know copy edited it there's so much that goes into it and this idea that it's one person's book i think is misleading but and i actually did propose that as yes i loved that part yeah but uh i think wisely the the editors like that will be very confusing and no one will understand what you're talking about but you know, maybe it should be. Maybe books should be should have like a hundred names on the cover. Or it would be even a little bit like music, where you have lyrics by this person and music by this person. 
Oh, yeah. Or movies. They've got yeah. the credits. Like, maybe they should have credits in books. Yeah, they could have a whole, like, a poster. Like, you do movie posters in the back. You could have a whole list of everything. Exactly. I think that would be nice. I think so. Well, you did. Yeah, I think the acknowledgments ends up being it, but that's largely due to what the author chooses to share. True. And I tried with this book, I did 1,000... I did over a thousand people, I think, over a thousand people in the acknowledgments. So it was like mega acknowledgments. It was it was impressive. So there was <laughs> another you. thing that was different about this based on your saying earlier that you hate the writing process, but you like the research and the sharing and putting the book out in the world, which was you did this with Ted and there was a companion TED talk with this. So I'm wondering how that process was having the book not just be the book by itself as the other books have been but something that was meant to live alongside with um a public speaking experience yeah well i mean ted the ted talks put out i don't know maybe four or five books a year and the idea is that the book comes out simultaneously with a ted talk on the front page of ted uh, and they approached me and said, uh, do you want to write something? And I gave them five or six ideas. And this was the one that they liked best. So that's the one I wrote. And, you know, I have, as I said, I've definitely evolved. Like when I first started writing, I hated talking in public. Like my first radio interview was cut short because I, after like a minute, I started stuttering so badly that they had to cut me off they were like i was like i i i i i and they're like okay thank you that's aj jacobs and oh, uh no. yeah it was terrible um but i guess it inspired me like you know i'm gonna try to solve this problem and i took every speaking gig i could and now i actually love it i love speaking in public i don't love the TED model because they make you memorize. There are no notes. So it was like a 15 minute talk and I had to memorize it, which is super stressful. Uh, yeah, I want to hear about that process. Did you so you wrote the book, obviously, because it's a long process when, when something's edited before it came out. So at what point did you write the talk? Was that after you'd written the book or before you got into the manuscript? Like, how was the timeline for all of it? That was definitely after the book because okay. I, I was able to like, you know, use the book as a guide uh, to think it through. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, I've done a few TED Talks. I did one for my Bible book and I did another. First of all, one thing that's interesting is that uh, when I first started doing TED Talks was a, a long time ago, like, I don't know, 18 years ago. And then Amazing. at that point, it, it was like 20 minutes, 18 minutes was, you know, everyone's talk was 18 minutes. Now they want your talk to be like nine minutes, 12 minutes, somewhere in there. So that's a nice way. Little... I think that's harder to cut it down. But totally. I agree. I had a lot of trouble. Uh, but it was interesting. Like, that's the way of that's the way of our world, like the uh, increasingly smaller sound bites uh but anyway i i did it and it was uh they work with you like the ted folks they like they're a, a huge machine now so they've got hundreds of people on staff 
who are experts at this stuff. You know, so you actually have to go and it's almost like a movie or a book in its own right where you you write it, then you go and you perform it for them. They give you notes. They say what what you should do differently, restructure it. Um, uh, I remember for one of them, like I had too many um, American uh, uh, references. And since oh, wow. this is supposed to be worldwide, they told me to get rid of my Olive Garden joke. I think I made <gasps> the Olive Garden joke. So uh, <laughs> maybe not. I don't know. I could be making that up. I don't trust memory. But the basic idea is, uh, yeah, they told me less American, fewer American references. And then, uh, yeah, and then you have to memorize it and you have to do it. Uh, I, you know, I did it every night while I was walking my dog. I would do my TED Talk twice and, uh, and then I did it. And uh, I am a huge fan of TED. I watch all the TED Talks. Now, what's interesting is when I watch a TED Talk done by someone who does a book, who's written a book, I'm always like, awesome that was great now i don't have to buy the book (laughs) terrible i hope that people don't do that so i i hope i'm the only one but uh i tried to make it clear in the ted talk this is just like you know the tip of the iceberg this is just a a little taste to use a a culinary metaphor uh but we'll see I, i it seems to be selling well so uh knock on wood i think it's a really good um gift book also for people who love coffee because I well, think uh, I love you to say that yes I'm definitely hoping yeah I mean we have many people who love it but I think there's just little things that you just don't know and you don't know that you don't know them like how interesting the construction of the lid is like oh how... I love talking to the lid designer that was one of my favorite conversations yeah yeah just I went how and much... looked oh, up the ahead. name I looked up the name I was like which one is it I was like oh it's that one okay got it <laughs> I know the amount of passion that he put into it is is delightful. I mean, he could have I interviewed him for like two hours, but he could have gone on for like three days about the intricacies of the lid and how, you know, the the opening for the aroma has to be just the right size. And uh, and he talked about uh, he actually designed it so that your nose can sort of burrow in and get maximum aroma uh so it was delightful. And the bigger point was, I think that there are all these hidden masterpieces all around us, the, you know, these sort of um, industrial design that we take for granted that really do make our lives better. Uh, and I, I, I'm sitting at my desk now and there's a, my desk lamp has a little on off switch, which has an indentation. The switch has an indentation that perfectly fits my thumb. And it's like, that's the kind of thing I want to try to notice because it increases your your gratitude, your sense of joy and wonder at the world. I think so too. I thought that was something that really stuck out because there is something, yes, it's wonderful to have a cup of coffee in the morning. But when you know, at least it is for me. I mean, I think it's true for many people, maybe not everybody, <laughs> sure. but I definitely appreciate that moment. And to, to look at, yes, it's so easy for us to think about, oh, it's so horrible. It's a horrible world. But yet there are all these little diamonds everywhere that are evidence of people really caring about other people having a better experience, like even with right. a, light, a light switch or not feeling like I think somebody said something along the lines of, well, I drank this coffee with this lid and it felt like my, my, I had a cold. I couldn't smell anything. It's no right. good. 
Exactly. And I think that's key. That is that is a key, a very important perspective switch is because I think humans are built to have a negative bias that you are we are built to notice the three or four things that go wrong as opposed to the hundreds that go right and uh, and I think that having this bias is dangerous because it leads to such dissatisfaction uh, for instance and I think it has it has big ramifications because you know for instance, when we read all the negative news about how horrible uh, the world is, uh, then we're like, oh, this system is not working. Let's just elect someone who has no experience in politics <laughs> and who's going to tear it all down, which turned out, in my opinion, to be a terrible idea. I but, agree. but if you look at, you know, if you read someone like Steven Pinker, he explains with such lucidity uh, that that the progress is real. That you know we could instead of every day for the last thirty years we could have had a headline that said thirty thousand more people have been rescued from extreme poverty because the amount of extreme poverty in the world has drastically gone down. It's just a shocking and wonderful statistic. So. Yeah, focusing only on the negative is—it's not just a wrong way to go through life. It's—it's, it's, uh, I think, dangerous, and it's—it's it's led us to where we are now. Definitely. So, I want to ask you if so. There's people listening who are interested in writing, and everyone listening, I think, may perk up at this whole discussion and say, "Wow, this is great! I would love to to try a project and look at life really intensely and see if writing about it could allow me to see things differently. How do you recommend people get started on this kind of project? Like, how do you narrow your ideas down and decide which ones are going to work versus which ones, the ones you said, the 99 ideas that are terrible? Like, mm. if someone's just starting out at the beginning wanting to to work on a project like this that's more personal and right. yet nonfiction, where would you recommend they start? Well, one of the things I do just in terms of process is I do try to spend 10 or 15 minutes a day just coming up with ideas and uh, like turning off all of my electronics and just with a pad of spiral notebook and uh, a pen just writing ideas. And it could be about book ideas. It could be about articles or just like random, you know, uh, sort of random brainstorming. So it could be just like I take something like, you know, uh, a snowman. And then I'll think, what can I do with a snowman? I could make it a snow woman. I could make it a snow transgender person. I could make it, you know, instead of the pipe, I could have him uh, vaping on a jewel. Like, uh, you know, uh, so and I think that that is lo a lovely ritual just because it keeps your mind, uh, you know, if you believe your brain is a muscle. Uh then it just keeps that in shape. And, uh, and again, the key to me is the, uh, it's a numbers game. So uh, if I come up with 100 ideas, uh, uh, I know that most of them are not workable. But, uh, but the ones that stay with me, like that uh, is a good test for me. If like two weeks from now, I'm thinking back to keep, keep returning to an idea I had, then that's a hint 
that maybe there's something there. Uh, and I do talk about it with friends and, and colleagues. You know, I say, what do you think of this idea? And, uh, and another key element is that to me, it should, it's gotta be something you're passionate about. Like there are plenty of ideas that I think might be commercially successful, but I don't want to do them because I'm not passionate about it. I'm not. And I also don't think it has like a greater purpose. It's not, it doesn't have uh, something. It's got to have more than a, a bigger message to impart, at least for me. So those are the ways that I, I try to choose uh, my projects. I think that's a great idea to just come up with ideas every day. I try to do it periodically. I don't do it every day, but yeah, I don't either. I try. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's a good, a yeah, good yeah. habit to get into. No, I think it's good. I think it's good also to come up with ideas where you, you are working with limited resources. Cause I think we have this whole myth that, Oh, the muse needs to be with me or I need to, you know, you could have said, well, I have to find the perfect cup of coffee somewhere. And I'm going to go, Oh, this one isn't quite right. This one isn't quite right. It could be this trying to seat search for perfection. And I think that we do that with ideas rather than saying, Oh, this one could spawn something that would be really interesting and would lead to a lot of insight, which I think is ultimately mm. more valuable. Right. No, I agree with you. Yeah, I'm always telling my kids perfection is the is the enemy. Never you're never going to get the perfect idea. You're never going to get the perfect word. Uh, so, yeah, just get it out there and then you can work on it and improve it and improve it and get closer and closer to what you consider perfection. But but uh, perfection itself is is a, an, a dangerous illusion. I think so too. And yeah. what is your timeline from the point that you have the idea? So you've had several where you took a year because that was the nature of the project where, okay, I'm going to do this for a year. Or I'm going to try this for a year. But in general, what do you think the timeline is between having an idea, researching it, really diving into it? Um, this one, it doesn't seem like took a whole year in terms of the project. Right. This one took more like six months. Although six months of sort of active duty. Um, I actually, this book was due about four years ago. So oh, really? Oh, yeah, I was there. I mean, I think a lot, the timeline depends a lot on what's going on in the rest of my life. And I have three young kids who are the, the enemies of productivity. I love them, but they are, uh, they are not helpful in me getting books out in a timely manner. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I usually try to, since I want to go deep, I try, I try to do it. The Bible, I did, I lived by the Bible for a year. Health, uh, I was going to do it for just a year, but it turned out I was in such bad shape. I needed like two years. Um, and this one to travel around and thank everyone. I, I mean, as we discussed, I could have spent, uh, you know, 60 years doing it because there's so many people to thank. But I, I did it for about six months. Amazing. Do you still do a lot of the health stuff that you learned or did it change when the book came out? <laughs> well, I do some of it. I do actually, uh, I talked in the health book about how I wrote that book while walking on a treadmill. Amazing. Uh, 
And so I still do my treadmill. I, I write a lot of emails on the treadmill. Uh, I'm a big walker. Um, I eat relatively healthy. Uh, coffee, there's there are pros and cons health-wise to coffee. You know, it's, it, it's good to prevent certain types of cancer and possibly Alzheimer's. Uh, there's also, if you drink too much, it's terrible for your heart. But uh, I try to ignore that. Uh, part and uh, and go with my confirmation bias and say <laughs> yeah coffee is really good for you so uh, I still do that and I mean one of my big takeaways which uh, I loved was that the um, you know it's it's unhealthy to be too obsessed with your health because <laughs> if you are if you're first of all it stresses you out and stress is terrible and you know if you're spending 14 hours a day working out and being obsessed with your menu, then that's time away from your, uh, your circle of close people, whether that's friends or family or community or your church or synagogue. Those, and that is so crucial. You know, people talk, they always focus on exercise and diet, but actually it's, it's more like exercise, diet, your social group, the support, the emotional support of your social group, stress, sleep, there's a lot more than just exercise and diet. So that's um, that's sort of my uh, rationalization for <laughs> working out a lot is that uh, you know I'm doing other healthy things. I think that's perfectly reasonable. And I think that Thank if, you, you. if you work out all day long, you're liable to get injured, which is very unhealthy and one doesn't oh, yeah. want to deal with it. I think the healthiest oh. thing I've ever done is moved into a fifth floor walk up and oh, yeah. no, that's good. accidental healthy choice. That's um, huge. That yeah. is huge. I mean, there's a famous study of, uh, of bus drivers in London uh, where they compared the people who were drivers and then the, the people who would walk up and down the stairs of the double decker, um, collecting tickets and the the walkers the stair walkers yeah lived some uh shockingly longer amount of time than the drivers so yeah you're in good shape excellent that's good to know i'll remember that and be grateful for it when i'm lugging groceries up the stairs there you go exactly (laughs) (laughs) well i want to thank you so much for now it's my turn to thank you for, for coming on and, and talking to us about this project and, and your writing in general, because I have long appreciated your work and I'm really grateful to have it to read yet again. Well, I am very grateful to you uh, for having me on. I've, uh, I'm a fan of the show and it is uh, it's fun to talk. And as I say, thanks to you. Thanks to the people who made the microphone that you're using uh, and to, to the uh the employees at Skype who helped us out. So thanks Yay, to them. <laughs> I think, who knows, maybe they're like uh, terrible people, but uh, they did provide this platform. They did. Yeah. Thanks to everybody. God, it would take me a really long time to thank everybody who uh, helped the show, make the show possible. But there you go. To all you out there. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. 
You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy.